to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Week on 3. I'm Janice Wong. Coming up in the next half hour, we'll look at some of the most interesting interviews on Radio 3 that you may have missed over the past week. Stay tuned to get an expert's view on the latest COVID measures and what's in store at next month's Hong Kong International Literary Festival. But first, to the low-key wedding of Princess Marco, the niece of the Japanese emperor. Princess Marco married her non-royal fiancé Kei Kumuro in unusually subdued proceedings after years of public controversy. The royal wedding didn't have any of the usual pomp, ceremony or glamour. The couple simply signed the paperwork to become husband and wife. On Tuesday's Newswrap program, Todd Harding asked RTHK's Tokyo correspondent Julian Ryle why the wedding was carried out in such a low-key manner. There's been an awful lot of opposition um, in the highest parts of, of Japanese society to this marriage. The, um, the engagement was, around, was announced in September 2017, um, and initially everyone was extremely happy. The princess was getting married, um, even though it was known that she would be leaving the imperial family. Very quickly after that, the first tabloid reports came out that something was slightly amiss in the Comoral family. It subsequently emerged that uh, his mother had some sort of financial um, shenanigans uh, with a former boyfriend. Now, the imperial household agency, truly the, the power behind the throne, is extremely risk averse. And to them, that was just too much to take on. And very quickly, uh, the engagement was delayed. Um, and uh, Mr. Komoro, um, the, the, the groom-to-be, uh, went to America, went to New York to complete his law studies. Yes, we've heard her husband, Kay Komoro, isn't very popular in the country, and a lot of people don't see him as a good match for the princess. Is that why? There's lots of reasons, um, but unfortunately it does come back to that. Uh, yes, the, the, the scandal over his mother's financial dealings was the, the, is the root of the problem, but of course the Japanese tabloid media have, have grabbed onto this, and it has led to some very, very uh, you know, unfortunate headlines here in Japan. Um, there are suggestions uh, that he's not purely Japanese, for example. There are suggestions that at, at university um, he had a string of girlfriends. None of these are substantiated. Um, and also, uh, it has led to greater speculation on, on social media. Uh, it's very hard uh, for Mr. Komoro and his future wife to sort of hit back or to at least play down these suggestions. Um, and I think that they have become very frustrated at that inability. Um, but that's the way it is. And unfortunately, some headlines have led to even more. And Princess Marco also declined a dowry of around 1.2 million US dollars, which she was entitled to for leaving the imperial family. Why was that? I think the sense was that with financial questions hanging over her husband-to-be, it was the right thing to do. Obviously, there are economic problems here in Japan as well at the moment, um, and they wanted to be seen to be doing the right thing. The sense is that the government or taxpayers shouldn't be supporting the family if she was going to be leaving the imperial family and, and, and uh, setting up a family with her husband and moving to America. OK, now that Mako has turned into a commoner, what's next? Will she stay in Japan or do you think she'll move to the US with her husband? 
For tonight, she's here in Japan. They're going to have it a bit low-key in Japan for a couple of days. Uh, the paperwork, I understand, has been put in. She has to apply for a passport now. She's a commoner. Um, but as soon as that is completed and she has the passport, they will then be applying to the American Embassy to, uh, to move to the U.S. on a semi-permanent, on a semi-permanent basis. Um, Mr. Komoro is a lawyer with a, with a New York law firm, um, and uh, it looks very much as if uh, they're both very keen to get away from the scrutiny of the tabloid media here in Japan, move to New York, set up uh, a house together, uh, and lead something of a far more normal life, um, and in time have children and uh, just blend into New York society. I think that's what they intend or hope to do. That's RTHK's Tokyo correspondent, Julian Ryle, speaking on our Newswrap program. Well, you may already know, the government has announced changes in its COVID strategy this week. Now patients who have recovered from COVID-19 and are ready to be discharged from hospital have to spend an additional two weeks in quarantine. Some infectious diseases experts, such as Dr. Leung Chi Chu, welcomed the tighter rules, saying they can help prevent repositive cases from entering the community. But epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong told me on Wednesday's Hong Kong Today program he doesn't really get the point of the new guidelines. I don't understand these new guidelines. So at the moment, the previous policy is that people who have COVID are put in isolation until doctors are confident that they've recovered and they're no longer contagious, they're no longer a threat if they're discharged. That's happened more than 10,000 times. We have more than 10,000 discharge cases back into Hong Kong. Uh, there's never been any report of any recovered case triggering a community outbreak, and that's the same in the rest of the world. I'm not aware of any documented report of a recovered case triggering a community outbreak. The new policy starting today is that all those cases that have been judged to recover no longer pose a threat to the community will be uh, isolated for a further 14 days. And so the average hospitalization is going to go from maybe 10, 12 days up to almost four weeks for each case. And that seems to me like it must be a waste of public resources, uh, putting extra pressure on hospitals when we know there's already a brain drain because some doctors and nurses have, have left uh, the hospital authority. And also, I think it must be causing a harm to patients, which is not justified by any public health benefit. So I, I really don't understand this, this suggested policy. Would it uh, help prevent repositive cases from entering the community? There's no risk to the community of repositive cases um, because those cases are not contagious. We've detected them from time to time. They've been detected in other parts of the world. There is a little bit of a panic whenever there's a positive case picked up in the community. That's a repositive case, and it takes a little bit of time to determine that it was actually a repositive. But uh, those are not risks to the community. So it, I, I don't think that's a, that's a reasonable rationale for this policy. Sinovac has uh, applied to uh, health authorities here to allow children as young, uh, young as three to receive its uh, COVID-19 jabs. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think we have to have a... Uh, an assessment in our heads of how many cases we're expecting in the coming six months, in the coming year in Hong Kong. If we're expecting a lot of cases in Hong Kong in the coming six or 12 months, then I think it's a priority to get the vaccine coverage up to a high level. If we're not expecting a lot of cases in the coming six or 12 months, 
then vaccination of children may have uh, may do more harm than good. And I would also mention that the zero COVID strategy is is a strategy which aims and expects to have a very small number of cases in the community. So if we're in the in the group of people that think there's going to be a lot of cases in the community in the coming six months or year, then we're, we may also be thinking that zero COVID is not a sustainable strategy for Hong Kong. The uh, mainland uh, lowered the age limit for receiving Sinovac to uh, three uh, around four months ago. Have you seen any data related to the use of Sinovac on children that young? What I've heard in the mainland is they've now almost finished the vaccination of secondary school children and they're now uh, right in the middle of the campaign to vaccinate primary school children. I don't think they're going all the way down to age three in the community as a whole, but they're probably doing five to 11s right now with Sinovac. They've got 75% coverage in the mainland and that's going to go up well beyond 80% once they've finished vaccinating primary school children. Um, So in China, actually, if they wanted to, they could safely relax their COVID measures and aim to go back to normal. But there's also advantages to public health of, of keeping the zero COVID policies in place because then you don't have people getting COVID uh, people getting sick and, and people dying in some cases from COVID. And uh, the government uh, also announced uh, that uh, 12 to 17-year-olds who had received one dose of BioNTech vaccine will be allowed to return from high-risk countries. Do, do you know if there are many teenagers who have received just one dose of BioNTech uh, from high-risk countries? Uh, c- certainly there, there would be. Uh, that, so children in Hong Kong can receive one dose and in the past they could receive two doses. In other parts of the world, vaccines are, uh, are available in some cases for children in that age group. Um, but, but actually, in my opinion, that vaccination requirement could be could be relaxed for people coming back into the city. It's not a big number. It's not going to dilute our vaccine coverage. And at the same time, these people are going into quarantine for either 14 days or 21 days anyway, which is already long enough to pick up any infection. So I actually, personally, I, I don't understand the need for, for vaccination requirement for people coming back into the city right now. And uh, on the uh, and staying on the issue of vaccination, uh, Sinovac has uh, applied to uh, health authorities here to allow children as young, young as three to receive its uh, COVID-19 jabs. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think we have to have a, uh, an assessment in our heads of how many cases we're expecting in the coming six months, in the coming year in Hong Kong. If we're expecting a lot of cases, in Hong Kong in the coming six or 12 months, then I think it's a priority to get the vaccine coverage up to a high level. If we're not expecting a lot of cases in the coming six or 12 months, then vaccination of children may have uh, may do more harm than good. And I would also mention that the zero COVID strategy is, is a strategy which aims and expects to have a very small number of cases in the community. So if we're in the, in the group of people that think there's gonna be a lot of cases in the community in the coming six months or year, then we may also be thinking that zero COVID is not a sustainable strategy for Hong Kong. The uh, mainland uh, lowered the age limit for receiving Sinovac to uh, three uh, around four months ago. Have you seen any data related to the use of Sinovac on children that young? What I've heard in the mainland is they've now almost finished the vaccination of secondary school children and they're now uh, right in the middle of the campaign to vaccinate primary school children. I don't think they're going all the way down to age three in the community as a whole, but they're probably doing five to 11s right now with Sinovac. They've got 75% coverage in the mainland, and that's going to go up well beyond 80% once they've finished vaccinating primary school children. Um, so in China, actually, if they wanted to, 
they could safely relax their COVID measures and aim to go back to normal. But there's also advantages to public health of, of keeping the zero COVID policies in place because then you don't have people getting COVID, uh, people getting sick and, and people dying in some cases from COVID. And uh, just finally, uh, earlier you mentioned that uh, we would be uh, doing more harm than good if we inoculated kids. Uh, why is that? Well, for every 100,000 children, or you could say other people as well, who get vaccinated for COVID, there's going to be a handful of reactions, of serious reactions. Uh, that, that's been documented. It's a very, very small number. And anywhere else in the world where COVID circulating, you'd say that there's going to be a lot of benefits of vaccination because there'll be infections averted, hospitalizations averted and deaths averted in children and in other age groups as well. But in Hong Kong, if our assessment is that there's going to be a very small number of cases in the coming six or 12 months, then that benefit is, is, is then correspondingly very small. So certainly in the last six months in Hong Kong, there's been quite a number of cases of myocarditis after vaccination uh, leading to hospitalization. And of course, we haven't had any COVID in Hong Kong in the last six months. If we're not expecting any COVID in the next six months as well, I would suggest to maybe defer vaccination until later when we have a plan for reopening and then we'll need to vaccine. That's epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong speaking on Hong Kong Today. Let's now turn to our Common Room program, where Alison Howe spoke to British singer-songwriter Callum Scott, who has just released his new single, Rise, the follow-up to his recent single, Biblical. They chatted about writing music during the pandemic and how he came up with the song, Biblical. Well, Biblical was a song that was born uh, during the, the pandemic. So it was a song that I had been searching for for about a year and a half of writing the second album. And I wanted to write a song that explained unquantifiable love. You know, how do you measure a love that in itself is immeasurable? I think Biblical, uh, you know, in the dictionary is a, a biblical proportion, you know, infinite amounts. And I just think because of the because of the where the world is right now and because of the pandemics and because of the um, the lockdowns, it just it's such an apt song for telling people just how much they're loved, you know, beyond measure. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful song at a time when I think we really need to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. I mean, we now, looking back, we just don't tell people that we love enough that we love them. I know. And, you know, the horrible thing about the lockdowns is that it is prevented us from being able to tell those people, to be close with those people. You know, I'm very, I'm, I love hugging and kissing and, and being close with my friends and family and my fans. And it's just, it has been really difficult to, to not have that. So I think biblical is a, a timely reminder of, of being able to tell people just how much they're loved, you know? Amazing. Now, how was lockdown for you? It was, it was tough. Um, I don't like to complain too much because I know that there's people who have been in really horrific situations and have lost, you know, loved ones and businesses and, and livelihoods. So I, I, I feel very lucky that I still get to be able to do a job I love. And, um, but, it, but it was very difficult. I, I struggled with my mental health. Um, I was living on my own, so I was totally isolated. Um, and it was tough. It was really tough. You know, I can be quite destructive with my mental health if I don't have that support network. 
Um, and I started looking at the album that I'd written and was throwing things away. They won't listen to that. They won't listen to this. And this isn't going to sound good. And, and so especially Biblical was one of the songs that really sort of re-motivated me. I was so desperate to record the vocals and we got the opportunity to record them in Abbey Road in London. Um, so it was just really magical and it restarted all that passion and fire for the album. And I can't wait to share it with the world now. Sometimes that's just all it takes. Like one song that you're proud of, that's all it takes yeah. to get back into that. Well, and the thing is as well, Alison, is that it's, it's difficult to find those songs because for me, I write very much from a place of honesty and sincerity and usually, you know, all of the experiences I have of traveling around the world and doing this incredible job usually gives me all the inspiration I need. And so it was quite tough in 2020 to, to be, you know, going from all around the world to then being put into lockdown and kind of isolating. Um, so that was really tough, but, you know, I kept on looking and my producer who I wrote, you are the reason with, um, he had sent me the, the demo of Biblical, the idea of Biblical, and I immediately just, it just spoke to me, you know, and I hope that that's what it's doing for, for everybody else around the world. Yeah, I do believe that it's really hard to get inspired. I mean, some musicians, they are great to go into the imaginary world and start writing about, you know, friction and all of those. But then at the same time for those artists, I mean, like yourself, like you said, you you know, you start from a place where it's honest. How many songs can you write about the distance between the kitchen and the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many songs can you write about making pasta or like watching Netflix over and over again? You know, it's like you, you come to a point where you're just like, I gotta stop. <laughs> I gotta stop. But um, but you know what I think? What I think the pandemic did um, was it forced me out of my comfort zone and. Kind of made me reappreciate being able to just hop on a flight or being able to, you know, just go and see my friends or go and, see, you know, play a show or whatever. So I think the pandemic has really sort of given us a moment to reflect. And um, it means that when I go back out and I'm touring again, I I will put my rucksack on and tour for the entire year if it means that I get to go <laughs> I can't believe I'm also admitting to that. I miss the airports. Oh my goodness, I will sit and wait for a plane for six hours, I don't mind. As long as I can sit on the flight, then I'm good. <laughs> I've been staring at the coastline Thinking of every choice I made to leave me here right now That's British singer-songwriter Callum Scott speaking on our Common Room programme. Now it's that time of the year again when creative minds gather at the annual Hong Kong International Literary Festival. This year it will feature more than 70 events including seminars, workshops, performances and much, much more. There will also be live streamed and virtual events featuring authors and speakers from all over the world. On Monday's 123 show, Catherine Platt, the executive director of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival, gave Noreen Mayer more details about this year's event. We're very excited this year to have a full weekend of live events. It's sort of a return to the, you know, the, the old festival format with, um, where you can come for a day and there'll be a lot of different live events to choose from. 
and many of those feature Hong Kong speakers and authors. Uh, and then some of them are also uh, like hybrid events that are live streamed with an author from overseas. But but the exciting thing I, I think is that um, it is a real going to be a real festival atmosphere around that weekend, and you can go to the Fringe Club, um, spend a day or an afternoon, um, or to Asia Society and kind of you know run between events, and um, there'll be book signings and hopefully a, a great atmosphere. Yeah, and and really central locations as well, and it's great to have that normality of being able to meet and greet the authors. Um, mm. So, who are some of the authors? And I know I was looking at sort of the people involved. I think you've got over eighty big names, eighty names involved. I mean, mixture of hybrid and 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 uh, people who are who are in Hong Kong. Uh, who are some of uh, the authors that we can see this year? So, in terms of um Oh, well, our headliners, we have some big-name fiction authors, including Amor Towles, um, who wrote A Gentleman in Moscow. I think a lot of people have read that and love that book, so he'll be speaking about his new book. Uh, Paula Hawkins, who wrote A Girl on the Train, again, a very popular thriller writer. Think, yes. And I've just finished that book. Very, it's very, very good, good isn't it? Yes, yeah. good <laughs> read. read it. Yes, I'm so gripping. <laughs> Um, and then Damon Galgut, who uh, is an author. I must admit, I wasn't familiar with his work before, but this is what's so wonderful about a festival like this. He, he's nominated for the Booker Prize for the third time. He's a, um, a writer from South Africa, and the, his book is called The Promise. I did read it, and you, I, you know, you're reading it, you really see why he's been nominated so many mm-hmm. times. He's such a, a, a beautiful writer, um, and it's a incredible insight into the last sort of 30, 40 years of South African history through the story of one family. Very interesting um, history there. Yeah. And to mm. think that it's not so long ago and, and the, the, the massive changes. Yeah. Wow. Mm. And these, I was going to say, these live stream events, I know sort of some people are they're excited to hear, for example, Paula Hawkins will be speaking, but then, oh, but she won't actually be in Hong Kong. But in fact, if you come to the venue, um, you buy a ticket and come to the venue, it's a bit like going to see a film instead of sort of watching at home on Netflix. You know, you're there in the in the venue and the author is although they're not personally there, they're they're on a screen interacting with the, the moderator and with the audience and so you know it's very much a, a kind of exciting and interactive experience. Uh, everybody who comes says, oh, this is really fun. You know, I, I didn't realize how, how great it would be. Yeah. Uh, what makes uh, this year so special is that you've also uh, brought on board loads of great podcasters, local podcasters, all of them my favorite. I'm just trying to n- name a few. Um, Emery Fung, Sissy uh, Radford, uh, Regina Larco, Vivek Malpubani. Um, uh, Tell us about this sort of expansion, if you like, because, you know, if you look at, you know, literature, it's very wide scope. I mean, tell us about this uh, expansion. Yes, well, this sort of comes from... um our theme for this year, which is the, we're calling it the rebound edition. Um, And that was, you know, the world has been through some tough times, still is, we're still in the, you know, going through this pandemic. And we wanted to sort of foreground mental health as our theme. Um, And rebound is a great way of packaging that with Mm -hmm. a sort of book pun, but also the idea of um, kind of resilience and recovery and celebrate how people are kind of surviving in, in tough times, but also acknowledge the challenges um, and the toll that that takes. And um, so we wanted, I mean, of course, storytelling is such an important element of therapy and of recovery, um, whether you're telling your own story or, you know, listening to other people's stories and books. There's this wonderful connection between books and um, 
and sort of recovery and they can be a resource and a comfort and an escape and a, you know a way of learning and and um um getting through getting through difficult times um so we wanted to look at different ways of telling stories different ways that that and of course podcasting these days is um is a great example and it just happens that there are some wonderful podcasters yes. in hong here in hong kong so regina larko is, is um who hosts um hashtag impact um, another fantastic podcast she's put this panel together as you said with sissy radford emery fung and the, the team of the kelly support group as well yeah. Um, I also uh, I noticed uh, there's a, a lot of uh, hybrid events, uh, virtual events as well. Was uh, was this sort of, um, you know, lessons that you've learned from, from the pandemic as as bad as it's been? Um, you've run very successful uh, festival last year, uh, despite in spite of the pandemic. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I do feel lucky, you know, last year, so m- most festivals and big events had to cancel, but we were able to go ahead because we were able to do this hybrid model with the digital, the online events and um, and as well as live events with local speakers. And we've sort of built on that over this year. Um, we did um, some events in the summer. We did some, um, we went to the Hong Kong Book Fair. We um, did some events with them. So, um, yeah, I feel like this year we're in a good place to um to really bring all of that together and put on a, a festival that is the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Does, does it make it sort of easier to get certain names because that there's no pressure for them to fly out and they're more likely to say yes, or is it more difficult? How, how does it work? It's a combination, to be honest. I mean, I think we definitely, as soon as we can, we will be flying authors in because there are some people who would much prefer to do that. They'd much rather, you know, get on a plane, come out here, and then we could we could do more with them. You know, we could take them to schools. We could do mm-hmm. um, a range of different panels and events. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. But, but there's no doubt that the digital element um, does allow us, has certainly allowed us to bring in probably, you know, headliners who wouldn't perhaps be able to travel. Um, and I think in the future we'll be able to do a mixture, hopefully. We'll be able to keep, you know, saying, oh, this works, this what works and what doesn't, and how can we combine the best of everything to really offer a, a huge range of experiences. That's Catherine Platt, the Executive Director of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival, speaking on our 123 show. And just a reminder that the festival will be running between the 5th to the 15th of November. Finally, to close this week on 3, I leave you with a bit of Steve James and his afternoon drive on Tuesday. My wonderful colleague Noreen Mir will be here next week to bring you highlights from Radio 3. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend. We wear silk underpants. Steve James, James Steve. The Tuesday Afternoon Drive. Oh, the factories may be roaring with the boom a lack zoom a lack wee But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. It's time for tea. Oh, they may be playing football. Hello. And the crowd is yelling, kill the referee. 
But no matter what the score when the clock strikes four, everything stops for tea. Tea break this afternoon, celebrating the birthday. Born 1967. Such a young man. One Mr Keith Urban, country music singer, songwriter, amazing guitarist, uh, whose commercial success has been mainly in Australia and the United States. In 1991, he released a self-titled debut album, and that charted four singles in Australia before moving to the US in 1992. Eventually, Urban found work as a session guitarist before starting a band that was known as The Ranch. The Ranch. Since 2006, he has been married to actress and big favourite in Hong Kong, Nicole Kidman. Here is Keith Urban and Wild Hearts.